Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital, dedicated to providing you with insights, assurance, and confidence to grow and manage generational wealth. Full Sail Capital is a fiduciary registered investment advisor managing more than $1.5 billion with a focus on integrity, competency, and transparency. Today, I'm going to be joined by Kyle Ray and Max Rhodes, two of our advisors here at Full Sail Capital. Both of these guys have a strong passion for the financial planning side of this wealth management world that we operate in. Max, as an attorney, has a background in estate planning. He serves as one of our estate planning reviewers, if you will. He's vital to our team as it comes to sitting down and reviewing estate plans for clients. Again, we don't draft these estate plans, but we simply serve as another set of eyes and ears with the client when they're sitting at their estate planning table. If you missed the conversation that we actually recorded a few episodes ago on estate planning, uh, go back and give that a listen. David and Scott sit down with me and, and we talk about everything that goes into estate plan, the do's, the don'ts, uh, some of the red flags. So today we're going we're gonna to piggyback off of that and go into the financial planning side of things. Also joining us today is Kyle Ray, one of our newer advisors but somebody that has really stepped right in and, and become a extremely knowledgeable user of our planning platform and has really created a ton of value already for a lot of our clients. So both these two bring some unique experience and a unique passion for the financial planning side of things. And our goal today is just to simply remind people of the importance, maybe hit on a few topics that get lost in translation, uh, what exactly financial planning means, what it isn't, and really help educate the listeners and educate our clients uh, as to the importance of really putting a plan together, um, no matter who it is, whether you're working with us or working with another advisor, uh, of having a plan in place is extremely important. So without further ado, let's get to our conversation. All right, Kyle and Max, thank you guys for joining me today. As I mentioned in the intro, I thought this would be a perfect episode to follow the estate planning podcast that we did We've kind of established, or I've kind of established what the topic is, but there's so many different ways we can take this. So I was going to let you two kind of give me an idea of how would you define financial planning? And maybe it's best to say what financial planning is and what it is not. Um, and we can get into when to start. Do I ever grow out of the need for planning? Am I ever too small to go through financial planning? To open it up, let's start with talking a little bit about what planning is and what it is not. Yeah. So I think people are familiar with the concept of financial planning generally. Odds are you've gone through some sort of budgeting process in your life. Maybe you've put together a finan personal financial statement for a bank at some point or just for your own individual purposes. Financial planning is more than just that. The term is used pretty loosely in various industries, certainly financial services industry, but at the heart, it is compiling your information, your debt, your assets, your investment accounts, your income sources, and putting that into some sort of system or, in our case, software to run scenarios and mesh that with your short and long-term goals. The objective is to give you a sense of where you are, make you identify where it is that you want to go, either in the near term or long term, and give you some confidence and awareness that you're doing the right things now to get you to that endpoint, wherever that is. Right. Kyle, what would you add to that? Yeah, I think Max did a great job here. I would say that it's really just the aggregation of assets, debt, a lot of the same things that Max said. But oftentimes this is not quite the relationship that 
many people think of with an advisor. Just past the strict investment management, this is something that could really clients peace of mind and comfort when the when the markets are tough or times are tough. Just looking forward for 20, 30, 40 plus years, pulling in scenarios like Max said, and just taking what comes and, and figuring out how it affects the long-term plan. And uh, that could be really beneficial for clients in the end. I think it's important to understand that all these things aren't necessarily clear to clients on the front end. You may not know what your short and long-term goals are. One of our roles as an advisor is to sit there and listen to you during these meetings, and often it takes more than one or two meetings. You may not necessarily be articulating what your goals are initially, but through conversation, we help you decide what those goals may be. Again, that involves you being a good listener and having the information in front of you to be making educated comments along the way to help kind of hone or refine what a client is trying to say, but maybe not necessarily saying. And I think a lot of this conversation kind of gets teed up when we do, you know, some of our advisors call it the asset allocation meeting, but really that's what we start doing is we start to get into the planning process there. Give us a few examples of what some short-term goals that you guys have been presented with and what some long-term goals are, because I think those are those can vary greatly depending on the, the individual. A short-term goal to somebody could be a long-term goal to somebody else. So what are a few examples of some short-term and long-term goals and maybe unique goals that would be interesting to, to the listeners? Yeah, I think some of the more common short-term goals, and Max can agree or disagree here with me, would be typically purchases like a home purchase or a car purchase within the next few years or right. or whatever that looks like next yeah. five years. Uh, the, the most common long-term goal for most people is going to be retirement and aggregating assets and building out forward-looking returns on, on what you're going to need based on income and, and everything and what, what that looks like. But uh, I would say car purchases, home purchases, those short-term goals, those are more the common short-term goals that, that need immediate cash flow planning, but longer-term goals would be retirement. Max, do you have any to add there? No, I mean, certainly any type of acquisition, car, house, things like that, but also paying off debt. Oh, that's a good one. You know, assisting with someone else's purchase of something, paying for school. I don't, you know, if your kids are already in high school, then college becomes more of a short-term goal than a long-term goal. I also think it's important to note that Maybe a client comes in one year and they have a long-term goal of retirement at 65 and the next time you meet with them, that long-term goal has become a shorter-term <laughs> goal. <laughs> We've yeah. certainly seen that in 2020 and 2021 with some of the more, I guess, mature workforce, uh, expediting retirement and something that they may very well have been working with their advisor on setting up retirement. 10, 15 years down the row, and all of a sudden that runway has become a lot shorter. And as an advisor, you have to be agile. You've got to adapt. Maybe it is you identifying what needs to be changed in the portfolio to tell them how they can successfully retire and live the life they want to live. As a fiduciary and advisor, that conversation may also be you're not going to be able to retire right now. I'd probably have a more long winded, gentle way of saying that, but. Uh, <laughs> But for the podcast, we're going to go with that answer. <laughs> let's look at a few. We were talking about this before we started recording, but let's look at the few common, I'll, leave, I'll say misconceptions, terms. You know, it's, it's, only, it's our industry, right, that throws out all these random words. To us, it's our everyday language, but to some people, like fiduciary is the best one, I think, that gets thrown out or thrown around a lot that if you're not in our industry or not around the investing world, it, it can sound just odd. In, in planning, what are some common misconceptions about planning. Um, what are some common 
misunderstood either words or descriptions when it comes to planning based on y'all's experience? I think one of the typical misconceptions, and this is this is a long-winded way of saying I don't really have a word for it, is, and I don't know if this has come through movies or through television, that kind of thing, but most people think about, when they think of planning, they're thinking of somebody filing through every little expense that they have, every Starbucks purchase, every meal they, you know, they, they buy out. I think most come in feeling like you're going to tell them not to spend here, spend here, not to spend there. Like filling out one of those doctor doctor forms when you go to the, yeah, the, yeah. the doctor, they want to know everything about you. Yeah I, th- yeah, I think that's a big misconception. And while we certainly could do that, that's not exactly necessarily beneficial either way. I think a, a little larger scale planning in the sense of larger dollars and, and that sort of thing is more beneficial to the client and uh, keeping in mind of time and, and those constraints there. Uh, I think that's a big misconception when I talk with, especially talk with younger people. I think what also I was trying to say is like through people that have these agents, like football players, basketball yeah. players, these kind of people have people filing, combing through all their stuff all the time. And we may get to this, but there's a budgeting aspect of planning, but we're not simply just sitting down mm-hmm. and going through, you know, a budgeting process. Now that is important. Uh, this is on a whole nother level. Um, over and above budgeting. Um, It is, but I will say that a plan is only as valuable as the data you provide to go into it. And so I understand the hesitation. Maybe it's a newer advisory relationship. Maybe you're still developing that rapport and level of trust, but holding back material financial facts about yourself only hurts the value of the plan. And I understand maybe that's several things a client is trying to weigh, but the most valuable plans we do are the ones where we have the client's entire financial. I think at times clients will try to impress their advisors, and this is just human nature, but you, oh, I only spend 5000 a month on one credit card. Yeah. I want to know what yeah. you spend on the other one. Yeah. Yeah. And they're rounding yeah, down. I agree with Max. I think that's a great point. It's And again, that's why it's so important, whether it's a client that works with us or a client that has a trusted advisor, that trust aspect is so important. And you have to build that because to Kyle's point, they're not trying to find out how much you spend at Starbucks you know, every week. And to hear Max's point, though, they are trying to help understand what the outflow is. And if you have set a long-term and short-term goal, like we just talked about, we can either try to help you get there or we can't based on the amount of junk in, junk out, right? Like if we don't have good data coming in, we can't provide good data coming out. Well, that kind of leads into one of the misconceptions is that you don't need to do financial planning. I mean, either you don't have enough money, so there's no need to go through the financial planning process until you achieve a certain level of wealth. On the other end, I have a client who's in her mid-90s, so she comes from a generation, several of which subscribe to the belief that you you never want to have all your eggs in one basket or just a few baskets. She took that yeah. to the extreme. And while she did an unbelievable job of saving and being frugal throughout her life, I think when they came to us, they had something like 47 accounts at 15 institutions. And I think that's pretty common, like you're saying. I mean, it I is. think that's something that and maybe it's a generational thing. I don't think we see it as much with, you know, the generation or investors under 50, 60 maybe, but uh, but, but I still run into quite a few, maybe not to that extreme, Yeah, but absolutely. Yeah I, yeah, I agree. And this is more of an extreme example, but when you've got that many moving pieces and you don't have someone or maybe a select 
few people at the controls. A, you're a small client to a lot of people instead of being a big client to fewer people. And B, you really run the risk of duplicating efforts, becoming way overweight or underweight in a certain area because the right hand, in this case, doesn't know what the 14 left hands are doing. Right. And again, the the basic financial responsibility was there in this case. She's a great saver, but it just becomes difficult for an individual to manage all that without someone at the controls. Yeah, and I'll add there that I agree with Tyler that I think it's kind of a generational thing, especially to feel like you're kind of spread out all over the place and not having risk in a few institutions, that sort of thing. If you have clients that'll hold out a little bit on you and don't want to aggregate everything into one place, this is where planning becomes even that more important. If they're willing to show you the asset allocation, how those accounts are invested, you can make sure that you're doing everything in our best ability to manage their accounts the right way and in line with their asset allocation, pulling in the big picture of, of accounts outside of us and that sort of thing. Absolutely. A couple other misconceptions that come yeah. to mind. Uh, one is that Financial planning only applies to investing. If you've gone through the planning process with us, you know that it's it's about your insurance needs. It's about budgeting to an extent. It's about taxation, um, tax strategies for more efficient spending, transfer of funds, etc. Obviously, there's a retirement planning component, but we also bring in the estate planning component for clients who may be high net worth or ultra high net worth may have a taxable estate. And so there's, that really opens the door to even more strategies to consider. Well, and on the last episode where David and Scott talk about the importance of estate planning, a lot of those conversations will get brought up when you go through the planning process. And a lot of times it's for people that have already done estate planning, but as they go through the financial planning process, because then you guys start looking at in the estate, out of the estate, a taxable amount at the end of a lifespan, because we can kind of project that out. Now, it's not an exact science and we're going to get to that here in a minute, but that's when I think it's very important when we can sit down and, and then we go revisit that estate plan. And we sit down with the client, we sit down with the estate planner, and we go through it all and make sure that it still makes sense based on you know, maybe it's new information or an inheritance or um, there's new funds that have come in. So, yep. yep, absolutely. Any other common misunderstood terms, items? The last one that we'll often talk about or joke about here is that one thing we know for sure is that your plan is not going to go according to plan. The, the second you walk out that door from your initial planning process, odds are that it's going to vary one way or the other from right. from what, you know, the data we input and projected. And we'll talk a little bit more about how we allow for that or contemplate that through the Monte Carlo simulation. But creating the plan is half the battle. And the other objective is to monitor it mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis. And so we know that going in that the plan's not going to go according to plan. So it's our job to follow up and make sure that if there are any updates, we're aware of them and we were making adjustments along the way. All right. So let's look at a few questions that we discussed. The first one was, and I, I can I think we have this discussion quite a bit, but should I start investing first or should I go through the planning process first? Odds are if you either post high school, post college, postgraduate school, you may have heard about the benefits of a Roth IRA. Maybe you've made a contribution already. Maybe you've joined a company and the employer offers you the ability to add a 401k account and you've made that initial contribution to that account. So maybe you've started investing before you ever thought about going through planning. That's fine, but start now. 
compile your financial information. And this is maybe a good time to, to say that you don't have to have an advisor to do mm-hmm. financial planning for more comprehensive planning software and stuff is absolutely key and helpful there. But if you're in an individual who doesn't have an advisor yet, write down your debt, write down the various interest rates that you may have on those various amounts of debt, write down your income, your various assets, your accounts, how those accounts are invested. Start now because the sooner you develop a game plan and at least start identifying what those long-term goals are. Maybe maybe they aren't crystal clear, but maybe you know you want to have X amount before you retire, whenever that year may come. That at least narrows the guardrails a little bit and puts you on a path that you can periodically check back and say, am, am I doing the things I said I wanted to do a year ago? And that, that that's really about setting goals more than anything. Yeah, I think you can absolutely start the goals-based planning at that point. I think we do a lot of goals-based planning here as well for even our most sophisticated clients. But yes, absolutely. I agree there. Kyle, what would you add or how would you answer that question? I would add, you know, like he said, there's no bad time to start the planning. Odds are if you're a year or two out of college and you happen to purchase a home or something like that, you might have a negative net worth based on your mortgage and your liabilities, that sort of thing. Way to be a Debbie Um, Downer, Kyle. Well, (laughs) hey, it's how it goes. (laughs) There's a chance that that's a possibility and getting a base plan in place is so important. And through your 20s and 30s, that's going to be the time frame that your income rapidly expands or you get big raises, this and that. It's a lot easier to go in and just change your income on your base plan rather than saying, okay, when I hit 30 and I'm making this amount of money, I'm going to put a plan in place. Why not go ahead and get the plan in place now and then just tweak your income as it it changes? Right. I mean, that's how a plan goes anyways. You're going to always be tweaking and constantly fixing things in the plan. I think I would add, it goes hand in hand. I think we talk about the younger you can start investing, the better. But we're also, what I'm hearing you two say is the younger you can begin planning, the better. Think about those years between 20 and 30 to Kyle's point. Your income is probably at the lowest point it's going to be when you first get out of college. It's going to continue to grow. I would say a handful of people would get married and, you know, maybe you move, maybe you have a, get a second house as you get closer to 30. So there's, there is a lot going on in that first decade, if you will, that I think planning makes sense. But I think we want to all, we always encourage people to start investing um, as early as possible too. So we do, I would say though, if you've started investing already, or maybe you're considering starting investing, what Kyle talked about the debt, having a negative net worth, or maybe having loans with higher interest rates. I mean, we are yeah, think an about investment our, firm. Think about our medical students or our medical right. professionals. That's right. We love investing here, obviously, but there are times when putting money in the market may not make the most sense. If you've got a pretty penalizing mm-hmm. interest rate on debt, put money towards that. You you have a guaranteed rate of return yeah. in that scenario. So again, this the process, we often say that the process of planning sometimes can be more valuable than the plan itself. The process of compiling information, looking at everything in aggregate provides value in and of itself that you can see various things that you need to address and prioritize those. Oh, I think that's a great point. We absolutely should have that conversation with clients about whether or not it makes sense to pay off debt in certain markets for sure. Let's go to this one because I think this is something that I feel like we get asked a lot. Let's go to the savings and spending conversation. Is spending in, a, in, in the sense that is controlling my spending or analyzing my spending, is that more important than controlling or analyzing my savings? Which one is more impactful? Again, to me, this is one, they kind of go hand in hand. However, as you think through during your life, the things you can control, 
as it relates to finance. When you retire, you lose control of one of those levers, and that's your income, assuming you don't have alternative sources of income. Your main job, your W-2 or 1099 income, that may go away. So when you look at the financial plan, there are really three things that, that are the big drivers, how much you make, how much you spend, and how much you save. And again, I, I know those last two can, can be used interchangeably. But to me, saving is more important early on. I mean, pretty bright guy uh, went by Albert Einstein called compounding interest, the eighth <laughs> wonder of the world. I can't agree more. Warren Buffett's talked a lot about it. I mean, the, the, the quicker you get money into the market, knowing how the market's performed over time is, it cannot be overstated, um, the power there. If you focus on saving early in your life, you're developing a, a fiscal mindset, a disciplined approach to your finances. And odds are, by doing that, you're going to be in a better position when you do retire, and you've got more control over your spending at that point, because when you lose that, that income lever, that just makes the spending lever all that more important. Max, you took it to kind of where our I wanted to go was it's a life stage and spending is going to become an absolute focus number one in retirement because at that point you're in your you can call it a spending phase you can call it your enjoyment phase of life where you have you've done all the saving now you get a, now you get to go enjoy it but now we've got to make sure you don't run out of money mm-hmm. that's kind of where I was going with that question Kyle anything to add on that I really don't have much to add on that, but it might be a good time to define real quick what our system and most systems, you know, we've often talked about a successful plan and what does that mean? And talking about when you get into retirement, you lose your income um, and you got to really focus more on your on your spending. It might be a good time to just define real quick how our system defines success. The default is just going to be dying with a dollar, making sure you have enough money to just money to outlive your life. But those that often can be changed if, if someone wants wants to leave a set number of dollars to heirs, that sort of thing. So defining success is different for each person. Right. Um, but this spending and saving um, goes so hand in hand with the success outcome of the plan. Absolutely. I've had conversations with clients that they view their wealth as that they built it, they created it, they're going to spend it, and it's up to their kids or grandkids to create their own wealth. Yeah which I have no problem with. That is their right as individuals and as the people that created the wealth. And then we have others, and we kind of talked about this last time on the estate planning podcast, other families that do want to leave money to their kids or they want to leave money to charity. So to Kyle's point, we can go in into the software and we can give that instruction because then you can go in, you can run the simulation. So let's talk about the Monte Carlo a little bit because that's, I think, one of those words that gets thrown out a little bit more than it should without being defined. So I know we kind of skipped over that earlier, but let's go back real quick and let's look at the Monte Carlo and what that is and kind of help explain that to people. It is a huge part of what we do. It's really what makes these plans so valuable. And how it does that is it helps simulate probabilities. It is a random sampling and modeling to help you take into account market volatility because we learn early on we can measure things by linear growth. That doesn't really add much value in financial planning. The market may be up 20% one year and down 20% the next year. And so when you overlay how much cash you're putting in or taking out, timing matters. And so Monte Carlo in our software runs a thousand simulations. And so as you think through why that may be a value, there's a 50-50 probability a a coin will land heads or tails. If you flip it three times, it may land 
heads all three times. But the law of large numbers, if you flip it a thousand times, that number is going to get closer and closer to 50%. And so if if we run a thousand simulations with various market returns, we're going to have a pretty good idea, stress testing the plan of where you'll end up accounting for up markets and down markets. And this podcast is being recorded in time where we're experiencing right. some volatility. And so the plan accounts for times like this. Yep. It does not say the S&P historically has returned 10 and a half percent. So we're going to apply that growth factor year in and year out. Right. That didn't, that didn't help yeah. you as an investor. Yeah. No, I think that's a great explanation. Kyle, would you have anything on what that Monte Carlo simulation counts for? Max did a great job of defining it. It just basically gives us what our worst case possibility scenario outcome is and our best case. And we usually somewhere end up somewhere in between and where the plan needs some tweaking, whether that's to savings or to spending is if you have a various number of outcomes that end up in a failure um, side of things. And that's where you kind of have to go back and start tweaking things. Okay, let's get our right. percentage higher. Let's save a little more. Let's spend a little less. Let's invest X amount more this month, that sort of thing. And the Monte Carlo really gives us a good indication of, of what we're going to need to do going forward. And that percentage that comes up at the end, the success percentage, Kyle touched on it earlier, define success that you have a dollar to your name when you pass. Well, most clients aren't going to let it get that far. I mean, it's really, Michael Kitsis does a good job pointing this out. It's the probability of adjustment, mm -hmm. not success. Because, I mean, if your account or your net worth dwindles down, you're going to make an adjustment right. in all likelihood. And so common example, if you've got a million dollars, you want to take out 100000 a year, 10 years, am I going to have enough? Is it going to last 10 years? Well, the answer may be 85% of the time, yes, based on your current asset allocation. But that will lead to the the next discussion, which is if you tweak your allocation a little bit, you may have a 99% probability of having money mm -hmm. after 10 years, but you're capping your upside. So you can narrow your range of results. You can make it a more successful plan, but what Kyle was talking about, your best case scenario, you may not knock it out of the park, but you're also putting a floor on the downside. All right. We've talked about the aspects of planning. We've talked about who should do it, when you should do it, kind of all of that. Let, let's talk a little bit about what are the benefits of using an advisor? And and again, we're, we're talking to people that are listening that are our clients. We're talking to people that, that have other advisors out there. But I think at the end of the day, we agree that there's a benefit to having that advisor on your team that can help you and assist you and hold you accountable. So what are those benefits? How do you feel like you add that value to clients that are specifically planning clients? I think more than anything, when defining um, at least a fiduciary advisor, I like to define ourselves as more of an accountability partner to our clients. So me and Max and all the advisors here that do plans with our clients, we're not there to just deliver the rosy good news of of success. We're also there to, you know, deliver the hard news of, okay, maybe you need to work another year. Maybe you need to save, you know, X amount more per year. If these are truly your goals, we're going to have to make some changes here. So I think more than anything, just the accountability partner, you know, stemming off that accountability partner phrase that I like when times get tough, like they have year to date this year, keeping your clients invested and accountable to that plan that you created prior to some volatility is super key. And that I believe that's what really helps clients sleep at night, what they can hold on to just, you know, revisiting the plan after some volatility, how it really affects, you know, 20, 30 years down the road, or maybe 10 years down the road, what the outcome of, of this market downturn we've had this year. Kyle, do you think clients that have gone through the planning process are more likely to stick to their plan 
when a market gets choppy? I do. Yeah. And, and by the plan, are we talking about asset allocation and staying invested in the market? Is that kind of, are we talking more about the investment or, or are we talking about? Let's, let's say this. Do you think clients are more at ease or more at peace during a, let's say a quarterly market downturn than a, than a client that maybe has not looked at any of that yet and, and they haven't really done any planning. They haven't looked at the long-term you know, effects of getting in or out of the market. Yeah, I, I certainly think so. Um, you know, we're not just an advisor just telling them that it's going to be okay just because we feel that it's going to be okay. We actually have a, a system and, you know, running Monte Carlo on, on a downturn in the market. We actually have some data and a presentation to give a client that and we can present to them and show them that this is like, this is what really happens through these sure. downturns and, and, and how this really affects your plan in the long term. We're actually you know, giving them something to look at, hold on to, not just, you know, uh, we feel like this is going to work. No, we have taken the data, we've taken, compiled everything, we've taken everything needed and compiled it in the system and actually thought this out and how this looks 20 years down the road. What about you, Max? I think that's such a crucial part of any plan is, again, using the term stress testing, showing the client, forecasting lower growth rates over time, forecasting increased expenses over time four times like this, that, you know, we're not just, again, using historical data and projecting it in the future. We're running scenarios at different market expectations, knowing that that may happen, that may not happen, but leading with the plan Going back to your question, does a client do better? A well-advised client should do better, Tyler, because when you lead with the plan, when you meet with the client for performance meetings, catch-up meetings, whatever type of engagement it is, if you lead with the plan and you reorient them to goal-based planning, we look at performance all the time. We look at performance relative to benchmarks all the time. That should matter to clients too, but what should really matter is that they're on track to meet their goals. And they are going to know that through us revisiting the plan. And so if you if you lead with that, if you say, this process we went through, this comprehensive process, took into account markets like this. We ran good and bad scenarios. This is not catching us by surprise. Right. That should give a client's confidence. Now, no one is ever going to be 100% confident. You cannot completely ignore the headlines. You cannot avoid fear and greed. It's all relative. It's incremental. But if we're improving the client's outlook over time, then that's what matters to us. Well, and we talk about this all the time. I think it comes up on just about every podcast we do about we preach controlling what you can control. We know we can control as advisors, as a wealth management firm. We know the things that, that we have the ability to manage. We know the things that the client has the ability to manage. And I think if you look back and we sit here and we look back on everything we've just talked about, everything that goes into a plan is a thing. Most of what goes into a plan are the things a client can control. The things a client can control is that market day to day and year to year, 10 years over 10 years. And so I think that's a great point, Max, that the plan, having a plan in place, some aspects, some amount of planning is going to, it's going to help in the long run. It's going to help in the day to day. It's going to help. It kind of helps over the short term and the long term. Last thing, as it relates to an advisor. There are plenty of studies out there. Vanguard's done in paper on advisor alpha. We know the impact of good portfolio management, reducing risk, um, being diversified. There's lots of data readily available out there to show the value that adds to clients over time. There is another way to determine an advisor's value in the planning process, and that is being able to talk to clients about money openly and having their full financial picture in mind. That sounds pretty basic with the podcast topic we're talking about. That is not common in someone's life. 
to be able to have that open dialogue. I mean, money can really be baggage for people family dynamics, Mm -hmm. guilt of having wealth, things like that, and creating a situation where someone can come in and unload that baggage or talk about things that are going through their mind. That is a quantifiable value that a good advisor can provide once you develop that level of trust that's outside the other metrics we use to measure ourselves. When I was doing some research for this episode, it's shocking how many times it shows up, but it's so true. One of the reasons people want to avoid planning is, I call it the neighbor effect. They're they're living in a way that to impress somebody, uh, the people they work with, the people they do social life with, their in-laws, their family. And it really is interesting how it, money is such a taboo topic. And again, like you said, we talk about it all the time. It's not taboo in our office, but I guarantee if I was sitting down with my wife and I, we were sitting down with our advisor, that's a whole other ballgame than me sitting on one side of the table talking about it to a client. And it's, it is funny. So I think it's, it's appropriate that we acknowledge that that does exist and it is there. And we understand and appreciate that. So there's ways to approach that gently and fairly and and in a way that should never stress anybody out or should never make anybody feel bad. That is not our goal. I think you both have said that. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes time. I mean, it it takes time to develop that relationship and level of trust sometimes. Kyle, we've talked about some of the common kind of misunderstood items of planning. I think one uh, deals with life stages. So what life stages or life events, in your opinion, should prompt somebody to revisit or start planning? Well, if the person's single and then they're going to get married, I think it's important that we visit the plan if the new spouse is, is comfortable with that and they're on the same page there. I think that would be a substantial change in income. I think substantial changes in income along the way is certainly a time to revisit the plan, make changes, that sort of thing. I think Max would agree with me here. Major purchases are a time to revisit the plan, but I think uh, if if you have a good um, relationship with your advisor, I would hope that the revisiting the plan comes before a major purchase. In many situations, you know, when someone's up in their 40s, 50s, nearing retirement, they may have substantial amount of assets where they could pay cash for another house or cash for vehicles or whatever that looks like. And part of the plan is weighing the option of potentially financing something, although you have the cash. So I think there's various ways to revisit the plan, but I think we'd always like to be in on the front side of it to give different options with the client rather than just what they think in their head is the only option. When we were going over kind of the agenda for this episode, to end, I think stories are the most impactful and I think can relate to the listeners the best. So I kind of asked each of you to come up with or think back on your favorite or most unique planning story and how it affected you, how you feel like it was. So do either of you have a unique example or a favorite story? As we end here, plenty of good opportunities as I reflect back over planning meetings with clients. But one that's happened within the last year, I had a client who has been contemplating retirement for a couple of years now. And to piggyback on Kyle's comment, he told us when he was first contemplating retirement and got us involved in the process. Uh, we had two or three planning meetings along the way, kept us updated as his timeline changed as his thoughts changed about retirement, really in summary worked just how the planning process was supposed to work. We ran scenarios. Last time I'll use this term, I promise, we stress tested the plan in a a number of different ways. And over time, built confidence within him that he could do this right now, justifiable confidence. And so he ended up doing it, talked to him quite a bit since retirement, seems happy with his decision, Um, seems peace of mind that he could do this. And that as a planner is 
kind of a best case scenario. That's what you want a client to feel coming out of the process, that they benefited from it in some way. It helped them make a decision, an informed decision with their team of trusted advisors. So it's a pretty basic one, but uh, one that Oh, that's a good example. I'm going to go a little different route here. I'm going to go with a younger person who we're still, you know, in the planning process. So we haven't seen a successful outcome in the sense of everything's looking good in retirement, that sort of thing. But uh, worked with a couple who, young couple who had basically a lot of interest in a lot of different areas. So various investment accounts, um, interest in some businesses, lots of interest in different pieces of physical real estate where rental income was coming in. And I, I got the sense that they were just really spread out and didn't have a good way to aggregate everything and and put everything on paper as to what they had and what they had coming in and that sort of thing. So I think the peace of mind we provided through um, just getting everything in one place, planning out future cash flows that we can, you know, eventually work with their CPA and estate planning attorney on is really beneficial. And I get the sense that it really has helped them sleep at night knowing that someone else is looking after all their stuff, whether that's business interest, um, just some complex assets and that we can track it all in, in one place and have a continued discussion about it as time goes on. And their situation is for sure going to change probably every few years. There's going to be changes with just how complex that they are. But I got the sense that we really helped them just have peace of mind that that uh, everything was you know in one place and aggregated somewhere and someone else looking after it as well. I can tell you two advisors in this firm have had several reality check planning meetings with clients too mm-hmm. that may not necessarily would have been as enjoyable, but provided just as much value. Yeah. Some of which the client, it may take them a while to see, but mm-hmm. telling a client honestly that they need to make some substantial changes in their spending habits or delay retirement, it's a tough thing to do, but it obviously will help the client realize that maybe the financial situation they're in is not quite what they thought. Right. And so those are those are just as important. Well, guys, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. And I think we hit the nail on the head. Planning is very important. It's not always fun, but it is extremely important. So again, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please review and subscribe through your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. 